I want to start out and just tell you a story about a good friend. And my friend uh, had a vineyard. All right, it was up on, a, up on just a beautiful green hill. I mean, picturesque. Right? Couldn't ask for a better location for a vineyard. He prepared the land diligently. I mean, he tilled the soil. He prepped it. He broke it all up to make it available for good growth. He, it was fairly rocky, a lot of obstructions in there, and so he made sure to pull out all of the rocks and get all of the obstructions out of this land. And once it was ready, he went and he found the best vine that he could find. Cream of the crop, best of the stock, and he planted that vine. He wanted to protect the vine, and so he set up a wall, set up a gate, wanted to keep the animals out, wanted to keep invaders out. And then he had done so much that he said, I'm going to have a good harvest, so I want to be ready to reap that harvest and and process it right there. And so he built a wine press on the site. So eager was he for the yield of grapes and the harvest that he was going to receive that he built and prepped right there. He did everything he could to make that vine strong and healthy and fruitful and prosperous. And understandably, my friend was anticipating a good harvest. But despite all that he had done for this vine, at harvest time, the vine only produced shriveled husks of grapes. Useless. What more could my friend have done? Nothing. So what would he do with this? Well, he would stop cultivating it. He'd let the weeds come and choke up the vine. He would let the the wall and the gate fall apart and animals break in and eat the vine and dig up the ground and make it just uh, basically a, a scrub brush wilderness. Because what use is a vine that produces worthless grapes? And so what I've just done is I've paraphrased God's perspective towards Israel in Isaiah chapter 5. That prefaces our chapter for today, which is found in Ezekiel. Okay, so open up to Ezekiel chapter 15. You might wonder, how in the world did you choose this passage? (laughs) Well, uh, I've been reading through the Bible and came across this passage a couple of months ago and um, just struck by it and its teaching, and so I filed it away under the category of if Pastor Rick ever allows me another chance to preach again, then, you know, I'll, uh, I'll pull this one out, and he did, and so I did, which, by the way, reading through the Bible in a year, um, if it's any encouragement to you, I'm on December 27th right now, and that's not because I'm ahead of the game. I didn't mention that the, the, the first service, and somebody said, oh, so you're just really, really ahead of the game. I was like, well, no, that's not my point. But, you know, I, just like all of us, I've been seeking to read through and seeking to spend time, and things come up, and early mornings, late nights, stuff you're not anticipating, and, and yet, you know, I, I've been really just telling myself, forget the date, forget the date, forget the date. Just read. Just read. And so, if it's any encouragement to you, just keep reading. And as you do so, especially if you're reading through, you end up coming across passages that maybe you wouldn't have come across otherwise, and um, learning things and being struck by things that are just so sweet and fresh. So just get yourself in God's Word. 
Okay, regardless of the checklist, regardless of the dates or whatever system, just, just, just read. All right, that's fruitful. Anyway, Ezekiel chapter 15. Let me read the chapter for us. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both of its ends and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them, though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have acted unfaithfully declares the Lord God. Ezekiel is a prophet who ends up ministering to the Jews who are in the land of Babylon after they've been initially deported. That happened in 597 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came and he conquered Judah He didn't destroy it, he just conquered it, and then he deported many of the Jews. And Ezekiel was amongst them, and so he's in Babylon with many of those who have been deported, uh, exiled, and he's looking, he's observing, and he's hearing about what's happening back in the land, and he's hearing what's, uh, what's going on with the people who have been exiled and all their conversations. 597, they get deported. 11 years later, in 586... Is when Nebuchadnezzar finally goes back and just destroys Jerusalem, finishes the exile, leaves just a bare remnant of the poor population there, but just completely decimates Jerusalem. So there's an 11 year time span in there, and Ezekiel is prophesying during this time. And he prophesies to the deported Jews regarding God's message that they have brought this on themselves via their faithlessness and their disobedience. That's God's message through Ezekiel, but we find in other chapters that there are leaders of Israel and even false prophets who are just telling the people, no, 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 this is okay. This is a blip on the radar. We're going to be okay, so just you know, bear with it a little bit, and then we'll all be going back, and it's going to be fine. Ezekiel 14 contains such a scathing rebuke of that that Ezekiel tells those leaders and those Jews that look, even if Noah and Daniel and Job lived in Jerusalem, the only people that would be saved because of their righteousness, which are three of the biggest, I mean, the the most righteous people that you could find in the Old Testament history, even if they lived in Jerusalem, they would only save themselves. And that's a scathing rebuke to those who have been deported and just kind of saying, look, God's not really that unhappy with us. This is all just something that's going to be remedied here in the near future. 
So that happens in Ezekiel 14, and Ezekiel 15 is intended to explain this. It's intended to explain how the people of God have failed in their functional priority, and as a result, have fallen under unyielding condemnation. So from this message, I think it will be helpful for us and our lives to see two strong warnings for God's people from the history of God's people, all right? We're going to see two strong warnings for God's people from the history of God's people. The first warning is this. We must not lose track of our priority as God's people. Thinking about grapes and vines, this image is it's a strong image, especially in the Israelite mindset. It was so representative of prosperity Success, fruitfulness, blessing. I mean, if you think about it, back when uh, the, the initial spies were sent out into the land, into the promised land, after they'd gone through the wilderness and they were sent in, what did they come back bearing as a testimony of the sweetness of this land? They brought back a ginormous cluster of grapes, saying, this land is good land. And so even, so, so since that time, Uh, vineyards, vines, grapes have all been an an essential part of the Israelite life and commerce and evidence of the bountiful fruitness of the land. And Israel itself is commonly and frequently compared to being a vine, like I paraphrased in Isaiah 5. You can go back and look there. Hosea 10, 1-2 says explicitly, "Israel, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself, The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. So this idea of Israel being a vine. um, There's a a psalm that talks about how God took uh, the the, the choicest vine from from Egypt and plants it in the land. And and then the whole same type of thing about cultivating and, and yet... You know, all that happens. and So it's a, it's a common analogy here. And here in uh, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel brings out the stark reality that as a vine, Israel had one primary purpose. Faithful fruit-bearing. Okay, God planted Israel in the promised land to be a faithful fruit-bearing vine. And he brings this out via what would be a common knowledge to the people that is this. A vine is useless for anything else. What are you going to use a vine for if it doesn't produce fruit? And that's, look at at verse 2 and 3 again. He says, Son of man, how, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch, which is among the trees of the forest? It's a rhetorical question meant to say, well, it's not. The focus being on the vine and the uselessness of the vine. He says in verse 3, Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Can men take a peg from it on which to hang a vessel? I mean, if you think about it, you know, you've got a piece of a, of a grapevine and you're going to sink it into the wall a little bit and you're going to try and hang a dish or a cup on it. It's just going to droop. It's going to fall. The vessel's going to break and it's useless. I uh, think about the, how prolific tents were right? And you stake the tent into the ground. Uh, try, try to use a grapevine as a tent peg. Useless. 
your tent's going to fall. A grapevine, the bark wasn't good for anything, the juice wasn't good for anything, the roots weren't good for anything. If a grapevine didn't produce fruit, it was useless. Last year, I had a, um, a large corner in my backyard that had been very overgrown with a very scraggly cedar tree and then a bunch of vines, a bunch of ugly, fruitless vines, um, which, by the way, vines are one of the most persistent beasts in the, in the yard world, but that's a digression. In this corner, I had a scraggly cedar and a large bunch of vines, and I decided, you know, it's time to clean this whole area up. Let's just take it out. Okay, so I prevailed upon a, a good friend, Justin Moldrup. He came over. He brought his chainsaw, and we're taking down the cedar tree. And, I mean, we're, we're cutting down the cedar tree, and, I mean, just, just we're looking at the, the logs and the beautiful grain of the logs. Oh, the, the aroma of, of the wood just washed over you. You're like, wow, this wood's amazing. That was an ugly tree, but the wood is amazing. Justin goes, man, we, we need to make something out of this. I, I said, dude, I'm not like you. I can't make anything out of that. But he goes, well, okay, let me just take a slice. And he took a slice and he took it home. And, and a little while, while later, he brought back a, a cheese board. Beautiful. You know, I could have maybe tried to make a doorstop and that'd be about it. But he made a beautiful cheese board. But the point being, when we were working with that wood, there was possibility from it. It was more than just wood. It was like, well, we could make something. Oh, the beauty of it. Oh, the smell of it. It's so wonderful. And he did. He made something beautiful and functional out of it. But the vines that had all grown up in that, in that scraggly cedar tree, that never even crossed our mind. I cut those things down. I cut them up into pieces. I bundled them up and I threw them on the sidewalk to wait for the garbage men to come and pick them up. I never thought, huh, gee, what could I use these vines for? Vines are useless. I suppose according to this, I could have burned them, but I think neighbors would frown on that. Useless, though. If a vine doesn't bear fruit, it has no use. And that was Ezekiel's point to the Israelites. But we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is the fruit that God wanted from the Israelites? I think we can get a, a nice and succinct answer. Flip back to Deuteronomy with me. Keep your finger in Ezekiel 15. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we find a helpful answer as far as like, what, what did God expect? What was the fruit that he wanted? It says in chapter 10, verse 12, Now Israel... What does the Lord your God require from you? Well, we should take note. Israelites should take note. What does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So 
circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Now remember, this is even previous to actually even entering the land. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. What was the fruit God wanted from his people? He wanted their obedience. He wanted their devotion. He wanted their affections. And those things lived out in the lives of the Israelites would manifest in the magnification of God's name in the midst of the peoples of the world. And that's what God wanted his people Israel to be. A bright beacon of the relationship and work of Yahweh in the world. And yet... And we find this in Deuteronomy as well. If they, if they, the vine, okay, didn't produce that fruit, then there was no use for them. Because a vine, if it doesn't produce fruit, is useless. And the interesting, interesting thing about Israel was that they didn't seem to get the message. Even, at, even in Ezekiel's time, even having been conquered, even having been deported, they didn't seem to get the message. They had been subdued and a significant portion deported, and yet they seemed to think that everything was going to be okay. I'd read the whole letter of Ezekiel to you, but there's not time. Check it out. It's an amazing, amazing contrast of, of the perspectives of, of the leaders and the people of Israel and the various places and how God was speaking to them. But picture this, okay? Ezekiel is sitting there. He's had the word from the Lord. He's sitting there by the fire with, with the leaders of Israel, with perhaps some of these false prophets and some other people in the land, and they're uh, uh, people from the land, and they're, they're over by the, by the river in Babylon, and they're talking, and, and Ezekiel looks at the embers of the fire, and he points to those flaming embers and says... If the vine has been put into the fire for fuel and, and the fire has consumed both the ends so that the middle is charred, is it useful for anything? And the people sitting around that fire are naturally going to say, well, no, it's not useful for anything. Behold, while the vine is intact, it is not made into anything, no pegs, no useful construction use. So how much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it still be made into anything? You see his point, his vivid life illustration there? Look at that branch that's been burning. What are you going to do with that? It was useless even while it wasn't burned, but now that it's burned, it's like, it's like almost a nonsensical illustration, but it illustrates the nonsensical perspective of the Israelites. 
See, Israel, God's vine, had failed in their primary function of faithful fruit-bearing. Even when they were planted in the land and societally and culturally strong, if they weren't fulfilling that that primary fruit-bearing function, then they were useless. Because outside of that primary function, they're not good for anything else. So not only have they been pulled out, now they've been put into the fire for fuel. And that's how God, what God uses to, to describe the fact that they've been conquered and deported. They've become charcoal under the heat of God's condemnation. And yet somehow, if you read the rest of Ezekiel, they think, oh, no, no, we're, we're okay. We're, we're, we're going to be useful. We're going to be back soon. We're going to be more prosperous than ever. This isn't that bad. And Ezekiel makes a vivid point. If a vine is useless for anything other than fruit-bearing when it's alive, how much less useful is it after it's been chopped up and thrown into the fire? As Israel did, we also have a primary purpose in life. As the people of God, as the children of God, we have a primary purpose. And what's interesting, you know, noting the consistency of God and even his language and his, his uh, communication, if we look over in John 15, flip over there with me real quick. John chapter 15, famous passage, we're all familiar with it, but we'll read it just to see the parallels here and to understand our own expectations or the, the expectations for us, rather. John 15, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So it's a little bit of a tweak to the illustration, right? Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And then here come the branches. That's us. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Why? so that it may bear more fruit, because that's what a vine is for. I added that. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, i.e., does not bear fruit, right? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Hear this. My Father is glorified in this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We are called to bear fruit as well. We have a primary function. We have a primary purpose as the people of God, and that is as branches attached to the vine to bear fruit. Now we've got to pause and we've got to make sure that we all understand that to be attached to the vine as a branch, you have to know the gospel. You have to believe in the gospel. You have to understand and be convicted of the fact that each one of us is condemned under sin before a holy God on the way to hell, do we not believe, should we not believe in the work of Jesus Christ? 
The fact that in his righteousness, God condemns us, and yet in his love, he sends his own son to bear the penalty for sin, so that if we acknowledge those sins and repent of those sins and then put our faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven, and that's attached to the vine, that we believe in Jesus and his resurrection, and then understanding that in being attached to that vine, we abide in him as our Lord, and then we bear fruit. Okay, so you have to understand and believe the gospel, and if you don't believe, understand and believe that, then, then you've got to start there. And I encourage you, urge you to start now, to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus. But yet once you've done that, having understood and believed that, we are to abide and bear fruit. Not just say, oh yeah, 15 years ago I walked the aisle and I prayed the prayer and I said this thing about Jesus and his death and resurrection, and great. And now I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm living my life and no, there's no fruit, but I, but I did that. If we abide in him, we bear fruit. So what kind of fruit? Oh, there's a myriad, I mean, just, let's just say the New Testament, okay? <laughs> the Bible. But specifically, think of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Titus 2.14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, get this, zealous for good deeds. That's some of the fruit that we're called to bear a zealousness for good deeds. As I was thinking about this, I was, I was needing to, to confess and ask for forgiveness for the times when maybe I've even done good deeds and yet they've been begrudging good deeds because, oh, I really should do this good deed. But God, you've saved me, you've purified me, you've called me to be zealous for good deeds. And so having, having these, these radars up of good deed radars, as people ping on your radar, you're like, how can I do them good? That's fruit that God calls us to bear. Matthew 28, 19 to 20 gives two massive categories for what faithful fruit, uh, faithful fruitfulness in the lives of Christians looks like. And that's this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, spread the gospel, evangelize. And then you baptize them and you teach them, okay, which is discipleship, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So evangelizing and discipling. Two massive categories of, of faithful fruitfulness in the lives of God's people. This is our priority. We must not lose track of our priority. Jesus replied that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lose track of our priority. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts or, or manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. So God saves us, bestows His Spirit upon us to serve the church. Don't lose track of your priorities. To build up this body of believers is one of the fruits that God has saved you and said, bear that fruit. And folks, this is mission critical. Faithful fruit bearing is our priority in life. 
I mean, there's, there's a lot of contemporary categories of success or faithful or, or, or fruitfulness, rather, um, that are not included in this. These are areas where it's easy to spend our time and our energy dumping investment into, and, and yet either the activity themselves itself or our approach to that activity defies faithful fruit-bearing. Before I name a few, okay, before I start stomping all over air hoses and making you upset with me, realize there's a caveat here. These things that, I, that we're about to just briefly talk about, they're not, they're not wrong in and of themselves, but because of the, the priority that we see here, they must be submitted to the faithful fruit-bearing of a Christian before God. Okay? So when I talk, for example, about political activism, and I, and I, and I ask and encourage us to, to be sure and to wonder and to examine ourselves, how often does victory in political activism or, or the opinion warfare that is just all over this nation right now, how often does victory in those things come at the cost of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? You can have political opinions. That's okay. You can be politically active, but that must be submitted to the spiritual priority of bearing fruit as God's child. Uh, what about wealth? The accumulation of, of, of things, um, you know, the drive for promotion. How often do those things come at the cost of self-control, of faithfulness, of time or energy for, you know, evangelism and discipleship? Oh, I, 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 I don't have time for, for any of that because I've got, to, I've got to progress. I've got to increase. I've got to have. I've got to obtain. I've got to Whatever. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. There's nothing wrong with getting a promotion. Okay, but that must be submitted to our priority as God's people of bearing the fruit that God has called us to bear. Okay, vocational success. Okay, this is a little bit different than wealth. Sometimes they're tied together, but not always because our vocation, what we spend our time doing, runs the gamut, right? Whatever your vocation, you might be a CEO, you might be a data analyst, you might be a mother, you might be a construction worker. Whatever your vocation, how often do we define fruitfulness in those areas as how on top of it we are? Oh yeah, all my projects, man, they are humming along. I've got no, no hiccups, no glitches, 99.8% success rate in my projects, Nah, granted, I've had to browbeat everybody around me into submission in order to actually get them done, but hey, I mean, that's... Uh, okay? Or mothers. I'm, I know each one of you has a whole set of things in your head that can define fruitfulness, success. But it's not the perfect meal plan. It's not the completely tidy house. It's not those things it is your submission and, and living out of the priority as God's people in that work. It's not okay to say that your house is wonderfully put together, but my 
my children think I'm a terror. <laughs> Whatever the case, maybe you've got you know, the best track, you're salesman of the year, all of your bids are accepted, you've got clients coming in left and right, and yet you haven't loved God and you haven't loved your neighbor, your coworkers that are around you, your child, your spouse, your boss, your client. You know, so that's not to say you can't be a successful, can't be a successful salesman, but it must be submitted, okay, to living out the true priority of a Christian, and we can't lose track of that. So, like I said again, they're not mutually exclusive, okay, but there is a priority, and so what we as believers, especially in this environment, in this society, in the, and in this day and age, we must continually come back to, to mission central, which is to bear the fruit that God, God has called us to bear. Okay? So heed the first warning here. Don't lose track of your priority as God's people. I, I understand the many draws on time the many competitors for our energies and our affection, our hearts, but we can't lose track of what fruit really matters. And so to drive home the seriousness of this first warning, let's take a look at the second warning, which is this. We must not take our status as God's people for granted. Think with me for a minute about the story of Israel over the generations. They come into the land how much faithfulness, patience, mercy, grace, long-suffering, and kindness that God poured on them. Where they were faithless, they were disobedient, and yet God sent them prophets to exhort them. God even brought nations to conquer them, and then yet when they humbled themselves, he extended mercy, and he brought them back into, into control, and he gave them prosperity, and generations of patience, and yet eventually God's forbearance with Israelites ran out. Ezekiel 15, look at verse 6 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given up to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them, though they have come out of the fire yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. See, God has given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this point in time as much as a piece of vine that has been thrown into the fire has been given up. And again, just just picture them sitting around the fire and he's giving this illustration. He's basically saying, look, you would not reach into that fire to grab that ember and say, sweet, I'm going to go plant this vine back in the ground and we're going to get some fruit. You don't do it. God reached a point with Israel after so much long-suffering, patience, and mercy where he set his face against them. His will became concrete so that nothing could change it as far as the conquering and the exile that was going to come. The people may have somewhat survived the first round of conquering. That's why he says um, that they may have come out of the fire, though they have come out of the fire. They may have, uh, by and large, survived that first round of conquering, and yet the fire will consume them. In the coming siege and destruction, they will be consumed. 
See, the Israelites took their status as God's people for granted. They presumed upon God's grace and their status as the people of God. And even the deportees were looking back at, at, the, at those who had been left in Israel, and they were saying, look, I mean, look at this, don't worry, it's not that bad. We'll be back before we know it, and it'll be better than ever. But God saw their stubbornness, he saw their, their spiritual darkness even in that, and had decided that the best way to show them that he was the Lord was by bringing his word and the promise of destruction to full fruition upon them. And we find this even back in Deuteronomy where he's saying, if you obey, here's what will happen. If you disobey, here's what will happen. Moses basically lays out the exact path of consequence and destruction that will come upon Israel back in the beginning of actually setting the covenant as well. But what, what does it mean that God has set his face against them? All right, let's look a little bit at, at uh, the history of the people. Flip back to 2 Kings chapter 21. Got you flipping all over, but it's good exercise, and maybe it's even spots that are a little bit stuck together, and this is good to see. The cohesiveness of, of God's story in the Bible is, is just fabulous, fantastic to me. So I'd encourage you to, to, to read through and especially to, to understand the overarching scope of the Old Testament. But in 2 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 10, here's what we see. This is in the midst of the reign of Manasseh. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and also has made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. What we find over the course of the history of the Israelites is that Manasseh actually repents. And then even after Manasseh, there's a bad king, but then there's, there's one of the best kings ever, Josiah, who brings about spiritual reforms like had never been brought about before. And yet God's face had been set. The consequences were coming. We can read about that in chapter 23. Look in verse 26 as the Lord indicates this. It says, chapter 23, verse 26, the Lord, however, did not turn away from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah and because of all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen and the people of which I said, my name shall be there. So even though one of the best kings that had ever reigned was reigning right then, God said, it's done. 
the fate was sealed. They had prevailed upon God's grace and long-suffering too long, and the consequences were set. Look back at Ezekiel 15, verse 8. Thus I will make the land desolate. Why? Because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. They didn't bear fruit. The fruit that I called them to, they didn't bear, and they didn't bear it, 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 and and now we're done. And this coming desolation that he talks about, it was such a desolation that it compelled the prophet Jeremiah to write his lamentation. Okay, a, a multi-chapter weeping dirge of lament over the destruction that came over Jerusalem. It was, it was utter. It was complete. They were a vine that didn't bear fruit. God planted them. He cultivated them. He sustained them. And all the while, he overly communicated his expectation to them. He overly communicated the opportunities to repent and the opportunities to align themselves with God, and yet they didn't. And so they reaped the consequences of it. They took their status as God's people for granted. Well, what did Jesus say in John 15 about us as branches? He said this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, i.e. lives a fruitless life, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them, And they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, here are two things that I'm not saying right now. I am not saying that your fruitful life earns you salvation. I'm not saying that. And I'm also not saying a believer can lose his salvation. But I am saying that a true believer will bear fruit. That's that's what Jesus just said. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Because he's the vine and we're the branches, and that's what branches do when they're attached to a vine. They bear fruit. But without the presence of fruit, there is no assurance of salvation. If so, if we neglect our priority as God's people and yet have no concern for our spiritual condition, it shows that we are foolishly taking our status as God's people for granted. If we neglect our priority as God's people and yet have no concern for our spiritual condition, it shows that we are foolishly taking our status as God's people for granted. And so the warnings for us in this day and age are twofold. Okay, to not lose track of our priority as God's people and to not take our status as God's people for granted. We have to remember that Jesus cleansed us so that we would be zealous for good deeds, even in a coronavirus pandemic. Jesus calls us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, even during an election season. Jesus calls us to the central task of evangelizing and discipling, even when people around us seem unapproachable in masks. 
I fear that our circumstances around us will, will serve as catalysts for us getting distracted. But when we stand before God to give an account of our lives before him, I don't think God is going to be, to be satisfied with, oh yeah, I understand 2020, pass. I think, he's, I, I think, I think the Lord calls us to, to faithful fruit-bearing in and through every circumstance, every context. I don't think God will want us to say, oh, I was just... I was just uncomfortable about the whole mask thing and, and talking to people. I didn't want to evangelize, and I didn't really feel comfortable discipling. Or, man, Lord, there was just so much political upheaval that I lost my self-control, and I just got angry, and I just, you know, boom, 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 and on and on it goes. Or, Lord, the social turmoil. Did you even see what 2020 was like? God promises to empower faithful living in anything. And so none of that denies our ability or the call to be faithful fruit bearers in the midst of life, in the midst of every circumstance in life. So don't take your status as God's people for granted. Pursue your priority. I want to encourage you to let growth in these areas, okay, as I'm about to to work you through, let your growth in these areas define your understanding of what it is to be a success, to define what it means to have a fruitful life, okay? Your personal sanctification and your growth in godliness. You can be fired from your job, and if you're growing in personal godliness, that's faithful fruit-bearing, okay? Define success and fruitfulness in part by your own personal sanctification and growth and godliness. Define it in terms of your good deeds that you do to those around you. I mean, it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit just leaking out in the midst of, of parenting, of being a worker, of serving the needy, that are around you, of having a compassionate heart to those around you, okay, that's, that is success. That is fruitfulness. If you see love coming out of you, if you see joy coming out of you, if you see peace and peacemaking, if you see gentleness and kindness coming out of you in your actions with those that are around you, that's faithful fruit-bearing, Look at how you love and build up your church. Yeah, I understand that, you know, masks make our, our, our corporate time together somewhat difficult and less comfortable, but it doesn't negate the opportunities before us to still to, to talk with one another, to love one another, to encourage and to exhort one another and to pray for and with one another. It doesn't negate that. And even outside of this hour and a half, you know, two hours that we might be together here, we still have about 82 other waking hours in the midst of the week with which we can do that. Have each other over for dinner. There's no masks. In your care groups, pray, love, serve, encourage, exhort. Pour yourself into that because that is what God has called you to do, and that is a measure of fruitfulness. Love your church family. Evangelism and discipleship. Share Christ through a mask. That's okay.
Not going to stop the gospel. Okay? Disciple one another through a mask. That's okay. If, if, if we're pursuing those things, personal sanctification and growth, the being zealous for good deeds, uh, loving and building up your church, sharing the gospel and helping each other learn more and obey better, that is fruitfulness. That is faithful fruit-bearing as God calls us to be. And I understand how there is so much around us that pulls our attention from these priorities. I'm right there with you. Okay, in terms of how it's, it seems like every second of the day, competing priorities are just screaming, whether it's in social media or the news or in our families or in our workplaces, these other priorities are just screaming, saying, I'm the most important. Focus on me. You got to keep track of your priority as God's people. Okay? And so my prayer is that these warnings from the history of God's people will help us as God's people today. The warning to not lose track of your priority as God's people. The warning to not take your status as God's people for granted. I want to close with a few verses from 2 Peter chapter 1. Then we're going to sing. So I'll ask the band to come on back up. I want to close with these verses, though, because... I want us to understand, even in the midst of this, that this is not a matter of like, you know, just, just grit your teeth and bear some fruit because it's good for you. Okay, this is, this is our primary function, and this is where joy is. And this is where communion, sweet communion with the Lord comes from, of feeling his pleasure and understanding the, the, the joy of knowing, yes, what I have done honors my Savior. These things point our eyes, fix our assurance in eternity. Second Peter 1, verse 5. Just listen, okay? This is our benediction here. Now, he's talked about the salvation that God has given. He says, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Uh, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, understanding your salvation, appreciating it, dwelling in it, resting in it, and then, and then applying everything you can to living that salvation out. Okay? That's what it means in this way. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. What a sweet promise. What a joyful anticipation is in the midst of faithful, fruit-bearing living as God's people.